You turn with me, please, in the Word of God to Genesis and chapter 25, beginning a new series today, and Jacob, his life and times and all sorts of things. Genesis 25, beginning to read at verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Let me just pray for Kay as she comes and brings God's word to us. Father, we thank you again for your word, for its power, for its authority. We pray, Lord, that as Kay comes, she will proclaim it with that power and authority, that it might truly impact our lives today, that we might know this is the word of God for us. We pray, Lord, that you will give her clarity of thought. We pray, Lord, she might know real freedom of expression, and most of all, that in filling and authority of the Holy Spirit of God. Bless her and bless us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you, Kay. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We're starting a new series. Um, do keep your Bibles open at Genesis 25, if you can, because that's where we're going to be looking today. Um, <clears throat> one of the names that God uses um, to define himself, to describe himself in the Bible, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you might recognize that, and you might have spotted all three of them were in our reading uh, this morning. The three patriarchs of Israel. That name, uh, for those particularly uh, when God uses his, his, um, these words to describe himself, they speak of his promise, his, his promise to us, of a God who never gives up. 
And God makes a promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham to birth a new nation of people who God will love and will bless. And then we come to Isaac, the son of that covenant. And then Jacob, who we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, He's the one that God chooses to build and establish this nation that he promises, his chosen people. And from this nation, of course, we know comes eventually the Messiah, the promised saviour, who is the ultimate fulfilment of that covenant that God makes with Abraham. To understand the strife that we begin to see in the family as as it gets played out in the reading that we had between these two brothers um, and why God needs to make a covenant with Abraham at all, we need to step even further back in Genesis, right back to the beginning, right back to when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and were deceived. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with creation at that point was spoiled, it was destroyed. And in that point, conflict and broken relationships took center stage where peace with God had, had always been. There became this broken, this, this conflict. And so this story um, that we've just read, that Graham's just read for us, uh, catalogues that ongoing conflict that is happening, that chaos that sin now brings to families, but not only to families, to nations, and we see it in our own times, don't we? But alongside that always is this ongoing story of God's covenant, of God's promise that through Abraham, peace will come again, peace will reign again. So we join the story now with Isaac, Abraham's son, and he's now 40 years old. His mother, Sarah, has died, and his father is nearing the end of his life. And I don't think it's too much to assume, although it's not in Scripture, but it's not too much to assume, I don't think, that Abraham will have shared about this wonderful promise from God with his son Isaac. I imagine them talking often about how his mum had longed for a child, about how God had miraculously provided this promised heir in himself, Isaac. I can imagine them talking about when Abraham agonized over that long walk up the hill, up the mountain, how he built an altar that God had told him to build, how he was going to give his son, precious son Isaac, back to God, and how God in that moment provided a lamb in his place. I wonder, did Isaac often see his mum and dad praying together, worshipping God together, thanking God for his faithfulness And the way he'd provided, I just wonder. Well, now Isaac and Rebecca, his wife, like Isaac's parents before him, now find themselves in the same place, unable to have children, wondering, how's God going to fulfill his promise? And in this personal and very painful crisis, the Bible tells us that Isaac prays, that he prays for his wife. Now, I'm very conscious this morning as I speak to you and to those online that there may well be couples who are listening to this this morning who would love to have a child, but that it's just not happening for them. And I recognize that this is a really sensitive area and that there are no guarantees on that journey. There are no easy answers. It's often a long and difficult road. But I think Isaac here speaks to all of us and shows us that at that prayer at times like that must be our first option and not our last option. 
How often do I try and figure things out for myself? Are you guilty of that? I phone a friend, I do a Google search, I worry, <laughs> I try different solutions, but nothing works, and then I, ah, oh, perhaps I'll pray. Am I the only one? Are we guilty of that so often? Isaac certainly modelled something, didn't he, to Rebecca, as he pleaded with God for that situation that they were in, as he prayed with anguish for his wife, who month after month after month faced disappointment and pain and hurt. How beautiful that Isaac, recognising the agony that Rebecca faces, prays and intercedes and pleads with God for his wife. Isaac knows deep down that God is the only one who can meet Rebecca's deepest need. I wonder if you noticed in verse 26 that Isaac was 60 when the twins were born. Well, I'm not that good at maths, but even I can work out they waited 20 years. 20 years of relentless prayer, of no quick fixes, of no easy answers, waiting, hoping, trusting that God would not fail on his promise. This promise that he'd given to deliver an heir, this promise that there would be a people of his own through Abraham's offspring. Well, I wonder what you're facing this morning. I wonder what burden you're carrying, what challenge is uppermost in your mind as you sit here this morning. That situation, perhaps, that you're facing and you've tried everything that you can think of, but you just keep hitting that brick wall. Well, I think Isaac shows us, doesn't he, don't give up talking to God. Don't give up talking to God about your deepest needs or the need of your wife, guys, or the need of your husband, or the need of your daughter or your son or your family member or your friend or your neighbor. That person that you see needs your prayers. Don't give up. Don't give up. Well, 20, 20 years later, Rebecca finds that she has conceived, she's pregnant, and like lots of women in pregnancy, she is incredibly uncomfortable. And for a mother of twins, I get that. I understand that. <laughs> There's far too much movement going on in her womb. Feels like her babies are fighting already as they're growing in her womb. There's already this tension that she can feel in her body. It's like there's fisticuffs going on, um, and they're not even out yet. <laughs> and, and Rebecca's really frustrated and upset and perplexed and like, what's going on here? And I just wonder if you've ever seen this amazing answer to prayer. God stepped in and done something really incredible in the past, but then... Over time, what seemed to feel like this amazing answer to, 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 to prayer becomes actually something quite difficult, quite hard to handle. And it's not plain sailing like you thought it would be. You begin to question God and wonder if it was his plan after all. I, I wonder if Rebecca felt like that as the children in her womb, where the babies in her womb were jostling about. But there's a lovely pointer there too, isn't there? What does she do? She quickly turns to God in prayer. It's quite an honest prayer to God, isn't it? And this is how God responds. Let me read it to us again. In verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Well, what God is revealing to Rebecca in this uh, moment is that going on in her womb is exactly that conflict that began when we as humanity turned our back on God. 
It's the outworking of this broken world that is going on. When a, when a creation disowns its creator, then you get strife and you get conflict and you get things going wrong. Here's a picture not only of her family, who, when you read the story, they're already um, experiencing conflicts, but of two nations, two, these two brothers representing two nations that are going to continually be at war, the Edomites and the Israelites. But here, too, is God. God reminding Rebecca that he will work out his purposes because that's what he promised to Abraham. But not quite as they might have thought. And as the story develops, even the baby, and, and even as the babies are born and as they grow, we discover just how different these two brothers are and how this continues to cause strife and enmity between them. So we have one twin who's born with red skin and an exceptionally hairy baby. Poor chap. Bless him. <laughs> and guess what? They lovingly, lovingly call him Harry. I mean, you know, come on, not Harry, but Harry. Esau means hairy. And Jacob, the second twin, is much fairer of skin. And uh, we're told that he kind of jostles and pushes his way into the world. He wants to get out first, but he can't. He's grasping at his brother's heel. And Jacob means grasping at your heel. That phrase has connotations, too, about being deceptive and actually what we see through Jacob's life is is he really does live up to that name and then you've got Esau he's the he's the real adventurer he loves to be outdoors he likes to be out on a hunt he's rugged and he's strong and he becomes I guess because he brings lots of lovely meat home for his dad he becomes firm favorite with his father and Jacob I, I don't know is he what we'd call a geek these days um, he'd have been much happier in front of his Apple Mac, you know, creating and designing computer programs and um, always in the house, never going out, um, always in the kitchen helping his mum too. So he became firm favourite with his mum. The thing is, Esau had special privileges as the firstborn. Even as a twin, he was born first, special privileges. His birthright said that he would be head of the family when his father died. His birthright said that when his father died, he would inherit double of what any other sibling might inherit. He was in, you know, he was in a good place. But he also, as head of the family, would receive God's blessing. So Esau comes in one day from outdoors. He's been hunting. He, he's absolutely famished. I guess it's all that fresh air, isn't it, when you're outside all day. And he smells the delicious food coming from the kitchen. It's his, his brother's doing the cooking. And he asks his brother, give me some of that stew. Well, Jacob's very quick off the mark here. And he uses this opportunity, doesn't he, to his own advantage. You've got something I want. And now here's my chance to get you, brother. <laughs> He's impetuous, Esau, isn't he? He's starving hungry. He's annoyed with his brother because they, they don't get on. And he's longing to, un, um, to satisfy this burning need that he has to eat. He's, he's hungry. And in that moment, he decides that his birthright is really not that important. So for the, bowl of, so for a, a, the price of a bowl of lentils, you know, a bowl of tomato soup, if you like, he swears on oath to give his birthright to his brother. That's his position as head of the family. That's his double portion of everything. That's his status and position before God, as in uh, receiving the blessing. He hands that all over, all over to his younger brother for a home-cooked lentil stew. Crazy, isn't it? Esau despises his birthright. What a story. What do we make of this 
sad. It's a sad story, isn't it, of strife and conflict and bargaining. Well, let's have a, a look first at Jacob. It's no doubt that we're to understand Jacob here as the underdog in the story. The underdog in the family, by nature of his birth, he would get um, very little compared to his brother. Um, in comparison to br his brother, you kind of get the feeling he's quite weak, he's quite an unimpressive guy. But you also notice that Jacob didn't, did nothing to deserve this blessing, that he gets this birthright that he gets from his brother. In fact, he's very manipulative and, uh, and quite a deceptive guy, isn't he? But Jacob seemed to realize something that Esau didn't get, and that is the importance of that birthright. And so Jacob wanted it. He really wanted it for himself. And I just wonder again, because I do these things, it, you know, if he was aware of the prophecy that his mum had when he was in the womb, had his mum, Rebecca, shared this prophecy with him? Because he certainly would have been aware of, the, of his grandfather's promise, of Abraham's promise. I just wonder if Jacob was, was trying to initiate God's hand. <laughs> and I wonder um, if we sometimes try to do that when we know God wants something and we try and work it out for him <laughs> rather than let God work out his purposes for himself. I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly drawn to Jacob. And as you carry on reading the story, I'm not particularly drawn to him as a person. <laughs> His actions aren't always great, you know. He's, he is quite deceptive. But I think what, what we discover and, and what I think God wants us to understand this morning is that Jacob didn't deserve that birthright. He didn't earn it because he was honourable and good enough. He didn't earn it, actually, because he bargained for it either. He earned it because God gave it to him by God's grace. He became the person that God chose to use in this amazing story of salvation that you and I are now a part of. I know Graham read this to us earlier. I'll read it to us again in Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, it's in order that we may also share in his glory. When we surrender our lives to Jesus and accept and declare that he is Lord and Savior, when we receive his forgiveness that he offers to us through his death on the cross, we are given a birthright that we don't deserve. Just like Jacob, we don't earn it through our good behavior or our good character. Like Jacob, if we're really honest, we are broken and sinful people, but we are given by God's grace and his love this amazing status as heirs of Christ, heirs of, with Christ and co-heirs with Christ. It just made me think of uh, Nicodemus, you know, because Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again. And when we come to Jesus and accept his love and forgiveness, we are born again into a new family. And in that new family, we are heirs with Christ. I wonder if somebody needs that to sink in this morning. What about Esau? Well, we've seen that Jacob longed to possess this birthright. Esau was completely indifferent to it, wasn't he? Esau didn't value that amazing gift that he had been given. He didn't understand that incredible promise that he'd been given to his grandfather and to his father and now to him. Esau was much more interested in those quick fixes, in that immediate results, in having that desire of hunger met. That was all that mattered. And Esau traded a secure promise for the future 
for the things that don't last, the things in the present. He sacrificed, if you like, the future on the altar of the present. I don't know about you, but that sounds a bit like our world today, doesn't it? But I think perhaps if you're a child of God, there's a challenge for us here this morning too. I've been asking myself this week, how often am I guilty of trading my status as a child of God, my security as the one who is the heir to all that God has and God is, because I'm too focused on the immediate and what's in right in front of me? It's a challenging question. How often are we guilty of trading our status as a child of God this morning our security as ones who are heirs to all that God has and all that God is because we're too focused on the here and now, all too in need of that quick fix, that, those things that just don't last. What's the bowl of lentil soup that I'm willing to settle for in my life? What's the bowl of lentil soup that I'm settling for in my life? I wonder if we're more interested in being on social media than we are on spending time with God. I wonder if we're more concerned about what others think about us, uh, trying to please others, than we are about what God says about us. I wonder if we're too busy chasing after a bigger salary and a more comfortable position rather than the ultimate security in the one who, the Bible says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I wonder if we look to someone to meet that deepest need we have inside of ourselves to be loved when only God knows and only God can fill and connect with our deepest need. Or perhaps we turn to self-help books, there's enough of them around, or we turn to gossip and talk to others, or perhaps it's alcohol or Netflix or food or whatever it might be that just meets that immediate rather than the long term? Do we lose sight of the inheritance that is ours, brothers and sisters, in Christ? Is our place in God's family, as God's children, something that we can lose sight of, something that we perhaps even hide from sometimes, or compromise, or even, sadly like Esau, give up on, because we don't value what that means in the way that we should bit of a challenge for you this week. Why don't we go home and look out all of the references to what it means to be an heir of, of, of Christ, with Christ. What does it mean to be a child of God? Let's look up all those blessings, all those promises, write them down, stick them around your house. And let's remind ourselves about the promises that aren't only just for now, that will impact our lives now, but the promises that we can hold on to uh, for eternity. Now, what about God in the story? Well, this uh, story, the story of Isaac and Jacob, um, Esau and Jacob, is, is mentioned several times in the New Testament, particularly by Paul. Paul, who um, is at the time seeking to wrestle out and understand the sovereignty of God. Big subject, isn't it? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God allow them brothers to, to be such enemies? Did Jacob choose to steal the birthright? Why did he do that when uh, God had chosen him all along? Wasn't there an easier way? But these are questions we ask, don't they, when we come to Scripture? But I think they're also questions we sometimes ask of our own story too, aren't they? Why is my loved one not responding to the gospel? Why did God heal that person but not my friend? 
Does, does God make bad things happen? Or is, is, is he responsible for the health challenges, the difficulties in my life, or not? Well, these are difficult questions, and when you get to your home group, have a go <laughs> at looking at some of them. But what we see in the story of Jacob and Esau is that it's a mess. It's a messy story, isn't it? We've talked about the conflict and the strife. And to be fair, if you keep coming back, you're going to find out that this story just gets complicated and more messy and more conflict. But what we discover in this story is that God is not afraid, so to speak, to roll up his sleeves and get involved in the mess. God's not afraid to get involved in the mess. A woman once said to Spurgeon, um, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, ma'am. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. How does God ever love you and I? And I think as we come to difficult questions around God's sovereignty, difficult questions around um, the things we discover, let's hold on to this truth that God is a God of love and his longing is that we know that love. I'd like to read to you some verses uh, very quickly in Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul again. For he chose us, God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. Paul really wants us to spot that. In love. God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In love, in love. Rather than giving up on his world, God found a way to work with and in our brokenness and our humanity. Rather than giving up on our world, on his world, God found a way to work with and in our brokenness and our humanity. Why? So that we could know his love again. So if you struggle with prayer, and that's been a real challenge for you this morning, if you struggle with prayer and holding intention, God's will versus what's happening in your life at the moment, then just remember that God steps in to our pain and our suffering because he wants us to know his love. He's not a distant God as we hear so often. He's a God that steps in to our lives could I encourage you to look at the cross again, that beautiful place where we see God's love in action, where we see the pain and the suffering that God was willing to go through so that we could know and understand his love. Let that love, let that grace shape and change you as you seek to understand and trust in the promises of God's love. You're struggling to live within the reality that you are an heir, that you are a child of God. Then take heart from Jacob, from this story, and see how God is able to work through Jacob. Even with all his failings, God doesn't once give up on him. God still used Jacob. God still chose Jacob, even though he was such a, a difficult and deceptive man. Hear this this morning if you don't hear anything else. Our failures and our brokenness 
don't put God off. (laughs) Our failures and our brokenness don't put God off. He can and still will use us. So as the musicians start to play and take us into our final sung worship, let's pause and be still for a, a moment, shall we? And perhaps it's important that we allow God to pinpoint that thing that he wants to work on in our lives as a result of looking into the life of Jacob and Esau this morning. I wonder where we need to know God's love touching those broken areas of our lives, where we need to know God's peace in the areas of strife and conflict in our lives, where we need to perhaps again to surrender to him and say, God, even though it doesn't feel like it, you are still in control And I believe that in love you've chosen me and you will work out your purposes in my life, even though I can't see that right now. Maybe you need to ask God for a greater vision of him and what he's doing in your life at the moment. Maybe we need as a church to ask God to show us and open our eyes to see where he is in control, even though we're weak and broken vessels this morning perhaps for some of us this morning it's our response is simply to say I'm sorry God I'm sorry for the times I've let you down I'm sorry for the times that I've I've been indifferent to my status as your child and I want to surrender myself to you again I want you to help me live obediently and holy for you what's your response this morning to this amazing God of love who doesn't ever give up never ever gives up on us.